Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I'm Mark Antony, and this is Demolition News Radio, episode 87. In this episode, for the love of old boots. This show is brought to you by Hydroquip, the UK's largest independent provider of on-site hose repairs. Call 0845 812 0212 for the 24-7 national call-out service. Or download the Hydroquip Job Manager app for iOS and Android devices from the App Store. I'll warn you now, this episode is rather longer than usual, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. Later today, I'll be heading for North London for a meeting. It's a big meeting, a potentially exciting meeting, and it's been about 40 years in the making. Before I get into the reason for the meeting, let me take you back to 1979. I'm still at school, and as an impressionable 14-year-old, I'm seeking a purpose and an identity, a tribe to which I could belong. I was marginally too young for punk, and my father's reaction to the Sex Pistols' appearance on the Brill Grundy show pretty much ensured that I would never be allowed to, to be a punk, even if I wanted to. I was, however, desperate to own a pair of Dr. Martin's boots. Even though the only time I wore shoes was at school, and the pair I wanted, eight-hole oxblood-coloured 1460s, were strictly forbidden at my school, as they were of the wrong colour. But I wanted a pair. I needed a pair. My father was having none of it. He dismissed Dr. Martins as the footwear of the skinhead and the football hooligan, and knows that a son of his would be seen in public wearing bother boots. That made me want them even more. One day, like Charlie Bucket finding a golden ticket to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, Lady Luck smiled upon me. A friend at school was bemoaning the fact that he'd outgrown his Dr. Martins and was planning to get a new pair. The pair he'd outgrown were 1460s, eight holes, in oxblood red, and they were a size five, the precise size that I required. Best of all, he wanted just five quid for the pair he was discarding. Now in 1979, five pounds was a lot of money, particularly for a 14-year-old. My weekly, yes weekly, bus fare to and from school at that point was 50p. Even if I walked the three miles there and the three miles back, it would take me ten weeks to raise that kind of cash. But I was an industrious child. I delivered newspapers for a local newsagent. I cleaned a car for a guy that lived close by. And while it would still take me a couple of weeks, the boots were within my reach. Despite the fact that it meant foregoing sweets and crisps for what felt like an eternity, I managed to scrape together the requisite five pounds. And to this day, I can't recall being quite so happy to hand over my hard-earned cash. I had to hide the boots, of course, as my dad would have hit the roof if he'd found them. And I was reprimanded almost daily at school for failing to abide by the strict rules on appropriate uniform. But it was worth every penny. And it was the beginning of an abiding love affair with those iconic boots that continues to this day. Here's a quick history lesson. Starting in 1901, the Griggs family were known for making boots in the small town of Wollaston, Northamptonshire in the Midlands. They were at the very heart of the English shoe industry, and for six decades, Griggs footwear earned a solid reputation as sturdy, durable work boots. 
The story then switches to post-war Munich, 1945, and Dr. Klaus Mertens, a 25-year-old soldier. While convalescing from a broken foot, he created a unique air-cushioned sole to aid his recovery. Mertens made a, a prototype shoe and showed it to an old university friend and mechanical engineer, Dr. Herbert Funk. The two went into partnership using disused military supplies to produce their un unique shoes. By 1947, they began formal production and within a decade had a booming business, mostly selling to older women. In 1959, they decided it was time to advertise their revolutionary footwear in overseas magazines. In the UK, the Griggs Company was now being run by the third generation of the family, Bill, along with brothers Ray, Colin and son Max. While scanning the pages of a shoe trade magazine, Bill's eye was caught by the Germans' advert for their innovative air cushion sole. An exclusive license was acquired and a few key changes made, including an altered heel, a bulbous but simple upper, a distinctive yellow welt stitch, a two-tone groove sole edge and a unique sole pattern. The boots were branded as Airwear and came complete with a black and yellow heel loop featuring the brand name. Taking its name from the date of its inception, April 1st 1960, the 8-hole 1460 Dr. Martin's boot had arrived. I can't recall a single day in the last 39 years that there wasn't a pair of Dr. Martins in my wardrobe. There's been a few periods where they've been pushed to the back of that wardrobe, most notably my ill-advised dalliance with the new romantic look during which I swapped bother boots for eyeliner. It wasn't a good look. My love of Dr. Martin's boots and more recently shoes has outlasted every other fad and fashion that's caught my eye and attention ever since. There was a time I would have sworn that I'd still be wearing Levi 501s when I finally meet my maker. But I haven't bought a pair in years. I refuse to spend that much cash on a pair of jeans I know I'll destroy with mud, diesel and oil. In fact, the only other staple of my wardrobe that has endured for quite so long is the ever-present pair of Converse All-Stars. But they only get an earring on high days and holidays. And to be honest, they now look like I'm having a midlife crisis. The one thing that Levi Jeans, Converse Trainers and Dr. Martin's boots have in common, apart from their timeless and iconic status, is the fact that they improve with age. A new pair of Dr. Martins can feel like a medieval instrument of torture for the first few days. That's why I'd never buy a pair online. They need to be tried and tested. But by the time they've clocked up a few years of almost constant wear, they mould to your feet to the point that you forget you're even wearing them. Sadly, like Levi jeans, they're at their very best in the few days before they finally give up the ghost. It's little wonder that they remain, remain highly desirable on auction sites such as eBay long after they were box fresh. I've worn Dr. Martins to the point of destruction and beyond, eking out every last ounce of comfort. The stitching has long since given way and the cells of the airway sole are exposed, but they still feel like carpet slippers. Now you might recall that way back at the start of this story, sometime towards the end of the last century, I mentioned the fact that I was going to a meeting. I say meeting, but to me it feels like I've been summoned to the mothership. I'm going to Camden in North London and to the UK headquarters of Dr. Martins. Now I've already given my wife my credit card to ensure that I don't blow my children's inheritance on boots and shoes. 
In truth, I'm not going to buy. If anything, I'm going to sell. Well, sort of. You see, Dr. Martins now has a range of work boots that are every bit as stylish as the boots and shoes that have adorned my feet for four decades, but which are now as much at home on demolition and construction sites as they are at famous Camden music venues like Coco, the Roundhouse and the Electric Ballroom. To put it bluntly, Dr. Martins has the boots. Between Demolition News and our sister publication Diggers and Dozers, we have a massive audience of precisely the kind of people that need to wear them. A marriage made in heaven, right? When I was growing up, my father was a chauffeur at a publishing company, the same publishing company that would ultimately give me my first job as a journalist. Although he never went as far as wearing a driving Miss Daisy hat, my father was, and still is, immaculately turned out. His shirts and suits pressed to precision, the tie tied just right, and the shoes gleaming. He would clean his shoes daily, but on a Sunday night they got a proper clean. To this day, the smell of shoe polish reminds me of my dad. Despite all I've said previously about how I wear my Dr. Martins to destruction, they are always well cared for. I own a valet box that is crammed with creams and leather conditioners and polishes of every hue, and this is applied lovingly to all my shoes, and in particular to my DMs. Cleaning shoes, a chore when I was a child, is now therapeutic. So therapeutic, in fact, that I often clean my son's shoes for him. Not because he's lazy, but because I enjoy the process. Which is why damage to my boots is so frustrating. So frustrating, in fact, that I can actually remember where I was when the damage was inflicted. There was the black pair that was scuffed permanently beneath the folding seat at Upton Park while I was watching West Ham. There was the oxblood pair that got coated in a corrosive liquid when I was helping a friend clear out his garage. Worst of all was the pair that I killed on a demolition site in Watford. I was walking from the allocated car park to the site office and caught the toe on a piece of steel rebar that was jutting out in the ground. The boots were only about two weeks old and I just knew they'd never be the same again. I could have cried. Between 1999 and 2003, Dr. Martins was a shirt sponsor for my beloved West Ham United. The kit itself was an abomination, a huge baggy swine of a shirt. But Dr. Martins and West Ham together, it was like the planets had aligned. I couldn't have been happier if West Ham had appointed Joanna Lumley as manager and insisted that she accompany me to all the home games at the bowling. As I said, I wasn't a huge fan of the shirt. But there was a time when the navy blue away shirt with, with Dr. Martin's plastered across the chest, paired with a pair of Dr. Martin's boots, was the very epitome of East End style. They say you should never meet your heroes, but I beg to differ. I've met World Cup hat-trick hero Sir Jeff Hurst on several occasions, and he's lovely. I've also met Midjua, lead singer of Ultravox, the brains behind the Do They Know It's Christmas song and an enduring hangover for my brief period as a new romantic, and he's utterly charming. When I was a kid, I jumped off a moving bus in Brixton and landed, literally, on Hugh Cornwall, the lead singer of The Stranglers, and he apologised to me. Of course, there is a possibility that the people at Dr Martin's might dismiss demolition news and diggers and dozers as a bit niche for their tastes. They might dismiss me as a jabbering fanboy, 
and they might tell me that they've allocated their advertising budget elsewhere and send me back to the station, making me walk past the sodding grape Dr. Martin store for some additional salt in the wound. But in truth, it won't matter. These boots and shoes have protected, caressed and adorned my feet for almost 40 years now. At this point, they could probably reveal that their boots were made entirely from the hides of endangered species, and I'd probably forgive them and buy another pair. Thanks for listening. If you would like to help support this show, Demolition News or the Demolition Magazine, please consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash demolition news to find out more.